Hi friends! This episode of Pod in Order is brought to you by Pranin Organic, a Canadian company that makes nutritional supplements using only organic plant ingredients. Pranin products are available online at pranin.com with international shipping. You can use the code PAW15 to save 15% off your total purchase. This episode is also brought to you by Naked Coconuts. It's an unfortunate common practice for many coconut product brands to use the cruel labor of monkeys, but Naked Coconuts isn't one of them. They are committed to providing coconut and MCT oils, soy-free soy sauces, and more, all without the use of animals. And finally, this episode is brought to you by The Grinning Goat, Canada's vegan fashion boutique with a storefront in Calgary, and more importantly right now, an online store that ships across Canada and worldwide. As a Paw & Order podcast listener, you can save 15% on your entire purchase at grinninggoat.ca simply using the code PAW15 at checkout. This is another iRaw podcast. We podcast to make the world a better place for animals. In the Canadian justice system, animals' interests are rarely represented, but the lawyers at Animal Justice fight to give them a voice in court and the political system. This is the Pawn Order Podcast, and these are their stories. Okay, everyone, and welcome to episode 57 of the Paw and Order podcast. I am joined by a very special guest co-host this week. It's Jessica Scott-Reed. Hi, Jessica. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really honored. Oh, it is a delight to have you on, and we've wanted to for ages, so I'm glad we're finally doing this. But many of you will know Jessica from her writings about animal protection issues. Jessica is one of the few journalists in Canada who covers these issues, uh, you know, virtually as a full-time beat. I mean, it's basically the the, the core of your work, right? Yep, yeah, yeah, this is my full-time gig. Yeah, and, and having your voice in the media has just been, uh, you know, frankly, revolutionary in a lot of ways. It it provides a forum for um, discussion about topics that otherwise wouldn't usually make it their way into the Globe and Mail. And we're going to have a lot more on that later. <laughs> so welcome, Jessica. Super excited for this episode. Yes, thanks um, And Peter is going to be doing every other episode from now on. So you guys are going to be treated to a ton of guest co-hosts which is exciting to me because we've got all kinds of cool animal talent in this country, people working to make the world a better place. And it's going to be fun to feature a lot of folks. Oh, I can't wait to, uh, to see who you have lined up. Yeah, some some fun people in the hopper. So, Jessica, how have you been? What's what's the COVID situation like where you are in Winnipeg? You know what, we've been really lucky here, thankfully. Um, Manitoba's done an amazing job at keeping our numbers really low. Um, So we feel like we're in a bit of um, a safe bubble here. Things are not completely back to normal, but my daughter started preschool this week and gyms are about to open. I think we have somewhere around nine active cases or something in the whole province. So um, we've been very lucky here and things are starting to feel somewhat normal again. 
Wow. I've got to say, I'm jealous every time I see your patio photos. Yes. Yes. You know, being able to visit friends and hang out. The patios were like such a liberating thing. It went along with the weather that suddenly we could be out on a patio and suddenly the weather was nice. And we were all very grateful. I had a lot of friends from Toronto writing me being like, what are you doing? Like, trust me, (laughs) we're okay. The losses were allowed. (laughs) I know for us, it's still kind of like this trauma associated with being in any kind of public place. Yes. Even even when I see people on TV shows now, like associating with each other, I'm like, ah, what are you doing? Yes, I know, right? <laughs> it's like the pre-COVID touching of each other. You're like, that's cringeworthy now. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's so weird. But well, hopefully Toronto will follow suit soon. We're still getting lots of new cases here, unfortunately. But yeah, fortunately, it, there you have it. Um, yeah, and so have you been working on anything exciting lately? Any writings? Yeah, I mean, that's, I, I suppose, one bit of an upside is that because of the COVID-19 pandemic, there have been a lot of animal issues coming to the forefront. Of course, a lot of us have started talking about zoonotic diseases for the first time. Um, and there's been issues with um, meat and dairy shortages and uh, uh, slower demand because of closures of schools and hotels and restaurants. Uh, And so we have this culling issue uh, on farms across North America. So I've been quite busy writing about a lot of different animal-related topics as they pertain to the pandemic. Um, And I'm grateful that I'm being able to talk about these issues um, during this time when a lot of people are, you know, stuck at home and hopefully reading and hopefully learning some things about about uh, how we interact with with animals in the natural world, ways that we haven't really thought about before. Well, it's good. I'm, I'm glad that the discussion in particular about zoonotic diseases is yeah. getting out there and, and the links between farming animals and zoonotic diseases, yes. because I feel like everyone gets these wildlife markets issues. That's not a problem. And of course, for us North Americans, it's really easy to say, oh, my God, those people over there in China are the problem. But right. looking in our own backyards, much more difficult. Yeah. And I think um, that piece by Leah Garcia's, the president of Mercy for Animals um, for the Hill was very um, eye-opening in that way. She was one of the first to really start making these connections between, um, you know, zoonotic diseases happening in markets over there as and and making that connection to what's happening over here and how things could really uh, be quite dangerous here as well. We are, we are cooking up uh, a scene not quite so different from that, that we really could be leading to um, risks over here for ourselves. Totally. And the the evidence right now shows that most people are still not really aware of that link. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been some interesting polls about that by Faunalytics and mm-hmm. some other sources. And yeah, I think the more that we can get that message out there and educate people about these huge ticking time bombs yes. in all of our communities, the better. Yeah, I will. I'll do my best. <laughs> <laughs> Good. I'm glad you're on it. <laughs> yeah. So um, I want to share a story with everyone that is like, this is very painful for me to tell the story because I've got a lot of guilt about it. But I feel like it's important because something happened in my life last weekend that that was um, sad. So I was down at the garden center with with my friend that I live with. And we were just seeing if they, if they had any kale, actually, because we've been having a hard time finding kale, <laughs> as vegans do. They look for kale. Always. And it turns out there was this tree in the garden center, Jessica. It was like more of a vine, actually, than a tree. It was in a pot and you could buy it. It was like $400, like insanely expensive. But um, I was standing next to it and I heard this cheeping and it turns out there was a little bird nest in the tree. Oh, yeah, and so there was one little baby in there, and the garden center staff um, said that there was another one who was nearby, and so we saw the other one too. And I was like, oh, that's so cute, how nice. But then we realized that 
These birds had actually been abducted from their parents. Wherever this tree or vine came from,、no. the birds got taken and the parents got left behind.、Oh, and it was、no. like, oh, oh yeah.、No. So I called some wildlife rehab rescue friends who know about these situations. And the initial plan was that we would just bring some food and water for them、mm. and, and hope that that would be helpful. But it became apparent pretty quickly that they, they were just. They couldn't survive on their own.、Mm-hmm. So they were they were fledglings.、Mm-hmm. One of them was like hopping out of the nest. Oh, and, shoot. And without a mom,、yeah. that's not good. No, because they're kind of sitting vulnerable to、right. predation and they can't quite feed themselves yet. They can't really find food,、right. but they're like big enough that they can leave the nest. So they're at this super vulnerable stage, but they're old enough that they could survive with some help. So we decided to take them back home. And feed them and keep them in the yard.、Um, there's an enclosed yard here, and that's, that's fine. It's like quite safe.、Um, and so the first night was great.、Uh, we fed them with like tweezers, and they were eating little berries and、oh, seeds and things. Good for you. And they were really sweet. They were so sweet.、Um, and then the next day, the advice was to put them outside. They would probably hop around in the hedge and you know, keep feeding them. They're not really going to go anywhere. They can't really fly very high. They can just sort of like flutter、mm-hmm. around.、Oh. So they're out in the morning, and that's great.、Um, they're eating fine. I went inside for a second to grab something, and, when I, and they were chirping the whole time. They're quite noisy, and、mm-hmm. I think they do that so their parents can hear them.、Uh. I am inside for a second to grab something. Suddenly they stop chirping, and I'm like, oh, that doesn't sound good. They, they're always chirping.、Uh-oh. So I rushed back out, and there was only one left. <gasps> and I was like, oh my God, what is this? Like, where are you? So I searched all around the hedges.、Um, Like, I wasn't gone for long enough for the bird to go anywhere, and they can't fly enough,、right. uh, high enough. And then the neighbor's cat came <gasps> skulking around, and I was like, no, no, no. Oh, no. no. And so it was pretty clear what had happened. Oh, gosh. And I was just like, oh my God, I still have such guilt about it.、It's、so like, your neighbor it, keeps their cat outside, lets their cat yeah. outside. Yeah, the cat roams free. She's out all the time. Oh.、Um, Just, you know, this is a particularly vulnerable time for birds, fledglings in particular, because、right. they just kind of like hop around on the ground. They can't really get away from anyone, although they're not, you know, they're not big enough to fly. So they can't get away, but they're also not like in a nest protected.、Right. So they're like sitting ducks or sitting chicks, literally. <laughs> well, and often they have their mothers sort of dive bombing if there's any sort of predators. We've seen these kinds of videos online that some of the, you know, these mothers, birds themselves can be very protective, quite aggressive if any. Sort of predator comes near their little fledglings trying to do what they do, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Of course, of course. But without their mom,、right. they're just sitting there waiting for cats to come along.、Oh, so, the reason I wanted to share this story, I feel like it's all my fault. I know, you know, we tried our best.、Um, the other bird we sent to、um, a rehab sanctuary in Waterloo, Wildlife Haven, these amazing folks.、Oh, um, the other bird, unfortunately, didn't make it either, but. Um, it's not really clear why. So, kind of a sad ending for both of them. But I'm sharing this story because I really want to urge people if you have cats, and、mm-hmm. I do, I've got cats, I love them. They're actually at my mom's house right now. Put them on the leash.、Yeah. If you want to take them on a walk, put them on a leash. My neighbor does it, I've done it. It's not a big deal.、Um, and the number of cats,、uh, sorry, the number of birds and、mm-hmm. other little critters killed by birds every year is astronomical.、Mm-hmm. And, You know, I'm guilty of having let cats roam free before.、Uh, I'm never going to do it again. And I hope that other people will join me because it's just this, like, especially right now with all these fledglings out, it is dangerous times. Well, and risk to cats too. I have had outdoor cats when I was younger, and all of them died early. I think, what is it, the average lifespan of an outdoor cat is about seven years as compared to almost twice as long for an indoor cat. 
being, you know, with, yeah. with cars and, and I had two cats that were poisoned. It's, it's, it's very dangerous for them too. Oh yeah. No, I've had the same thing. Cars, poison. Mm-hmm. I think a predator, like a hawk got a kitten once. Oh, it's gosh. just, it's a scary world. Keep them inside. Keep them inside people. If you can, <laughs> um, the birds will thank you. Songbirds are disappearing. They need our help. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, in happier news, although it's actually not happier news. <laughs> oh, Jessica, were you watching the hearings this week on Ontario's egg gag bill 156? Oh, yes. I was tuning in and then I had to take breaks and tune out because there were some highs and there were some lows. What? What a roller coaster. Oh, boy. <laughs> Whoa, boy. Yeah. Yeah. So just to update everyone, I think we mentioned this on the last podcast, but um, just so we're all kind of aware of what's happening, Ontario decided it would move forward with the egg gag bill 156, which would make it an offense basically to get a job um, as a whistleblower on a farm or to be a whistle or to be an employee and blow the whistle. Mm -hmm. So the point is to hide secret animal cruelty, uh, keep it covered up even more than it already is. And uh, it was like, first of all, shocking, Jess, that the government decided to do this in the pandemic. Yeah. Did they think they were just going to slide it by without anybody noticing while all these other big things were happening? Like, what was up with that? I think they did think that. And I think the farmers were also pushing them really hard. Mm -hmm. The farmers want this legislation. The farmers get what they want because they're very powerful. Mm So that's frustrating. But yeah, so on Monday the 8th and Tuesday the 9th, we had hearings. So the first bit of drama about the hearings is that they were initially not even going to be public hearings. They were going to be secret closed door hearings. Yeah. Basically, like witnesses could join a Zoom call for testimony, but then you're kicked out right after, not broadcast online, like no way for the public to join in, in person, which usually we'd be able to do. Right, right. But you had a lot of people um, contact and, and make a make a fuss out of it. And then change came, right? Yeah, so change came partially. So the, the hearing on Monday, the 8th, uh, ended up, they televised it. Yeah. They were like, oh, you know, it wasn't in the right committee room because, you know, only one committee room has like broadcast capabilities, uh, which I just don't buy. Yeah, so I don't either. the hearing on Monday. No, because like it's on Zoom. Even I know how to broadcast a Zoom meeting. Exactly. On the internet. Like, yeah, like our grandparents easy. are figuring out Zoom. Like I'm sure the government can yeah, with all those resources at their disposal and technical experts, like, yeah. it's, you know, either they're being misleading or they're just, you know, incompetent because it's easy to do. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the first thing. Um, so Monday was televised. Tuesday was not. The hearings on Tuesday right. happened behind closed doors. Yeah. And that That's a shame. But um, yeah, so Monday. Oh, boy. Where to start? No kidding. Where to start? Yeah. Well, it was it was an interesting mix. There were a ton of animal advocates who testified. Most of the industry people were on Tuesday, so we didn't see as much of them, although there were a number of them there. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I was there. I testified Mercy for Animals, Last Chance for Animals, Humane Society International, Humane Society of the United States, World Animal Protection, um, Coalition, coalition for Farmed, Canadian Coalition for Farm Animals. Is that how, what it is? Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's right. They were there, too. Um, and then lots of individual animal advocates as well, and including some people who have been involved in on-farm trespass. So, mm-hmm. so that was kind of interesting. The the MPPs really did not want to ask them any questions. Yes, and I loved how um, you know Anita and Jenny they really kept bringing um, the story back to the animals. You know they they would answer the question and then centralize the suffering of the animals every chance they got. I really appreciated that part, and and I think that they really were the ones speaking directly for the animals um, in, in those moments. 
Yeah, it's it's really good to see. I mean, legislators need to confront these issues. Yeah. It's 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 easy for them to bury their heads under the sand. And actually, one of the things I mentioned in my remarks is that um you know, the government has quoted us in support of some of its other efforts. Like mm-hmm. when they released the Pause Act last year, mm-hmm. I actually, you know, thought that was pretty good and they quoted animal justice in the legislature to say, "Oh yeah, we're doing a good job." But this is the first time that I've been able to sit in front of, well, virtually, but mm-hmm. sit down face to face with anyone in the government because they just wouldn't meet with us on this. So like it, they, they really don't want to confront these issues, but they really have to because society is changing. Yes. And politicians who don't change with it are going to be left behind. When we saw that there were other just concerned citizens, not even necessarily farmers or lobbyists or activists, but just concerned citizens that had opinions about this, about that this was going to be unfair and potentially unsafe for the public interest. Um, I, th- I found that very interesting. Yeah, that was one of the really cool points about this whole thing. Uh, Janet Fraser and Chandra McKinnon, they're awesome women, just regular citizens, not affiliated with activism groups or anything. And they just heard that Ontario is trying to hide what happens on farms. And they were so mad that they felt they had to testify. Yes. And I think that's representative of a lot of people when they hear about this. Last Chance for Animals did a poll. Uh, we'll link to it in the show notes, and I don't have the numbers in front of me, but the, the poll showed very clearly that people really want transparency in the food system. Mm-hmm. And there's all kinds of evidence about the fact that when people learn about the existence of egg gag laws, they lose trust in the food system. And I think that's, you know, something that politicians can't ignore. Yeah, the, there's been um, studies, and I think it was in the U.S., that said exactly that, that um, in places where egg gag laws had been enacted, that public trust in animal agriculture was actually lower in that case, uh, which I think it really just goes to show that it it looks more like they're hiding things uh, than they're actually trying to, quote, protect their business. Yeah, that's exactly it. And, you know, interestingly, um, a man named Chris Holbein from Humane Society of the United States, they've been involved in all these legislative fights on AGIG in, I think, 30 different states. Mm because the industry has tried to push it everywhere. And he says that, you know, by the end of the litigation in in states where egg gig laws have been challenged, uh, farmers are begging for the government to step down Mm -hmm. and stop fighting because it just comes back on the farmers every time these cases are in the news. Exactly. It looks bad on the farmers. Any any chance that they that they that you can put the stuff into the news. And really, this just gives us more opportunity. This gives me more opportunity to do what I do. That's for sure. Well, definitely, definitely. When people hear about it, they just wonder what's what's being hidden. So, you know, that's a point I made when I testified, too. It's mm-hmm. like we've seen this movie before. We know how it ends. The laws are going to be struck down because they're an unconstitutional restriction on free speech. They prevent investigative reporting and they stop people from getting information that's necessary and relevant to their lives mm-hmm. about the treatment of animals. So, you know, in the end, these um, exposés are going to be legal again. But what's going to happen in the meantime is the farm industry is going to be dragged through the mud yep. and everyone in Ontario is going to be wondering, what are they trying to hide? Well, and Alberta too, right? We have the same um, even quickly passed bill in Alberta that's that's also an egg-gag legislation, but that we're actually being concerned that will apply to other uh, industries as well. Like, uh, Absolutely. Right, the long-term it's even care more homes. troubling. Yeah, long-term yeah. care homes, uh, plant uh, meatpacking plants or slaughterhouses, we should more rightly call them. Um, so it's even it's even broader in Alberta, right? The bill Bill Twenty Seven is is much broader. It doesn't just pertain to food production. Is that correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. It's it's it basically says it's an offense to use a false pretense to get access to any private property. 
Right. How, how troubling is that? So I've been working on some stuff with this for an upcoming story, and I've been talking to advocates um, for residents of long-term care homes, um, unions for people working in these um, different factories and meatpacking plants. Um, the Toronto Star had an amazing undercover investigation, I think it was in 2017, at an industrial bakery. Uh, and one of the reporters went undercover and worked at one of these industrial bakeries where there was a lot of um, worker injuries and I think a fatality. And if if that case, if that if that reporter was doing what she was doing in that story in Alberta today, she could potentially be charged because she got the job under the false pretense that she was there to work when in fact she was a journalist. So that really that concerns me. It's it's horribly concerning and for all kinds of sectors, as you point out. And I think that's one of the other points that came through at the uh, hearings on Monday and Tuesday is that this isn't just about animal cruelty. Right. Um, this could be about farm workplace safety. This could be about illegal conduct in the workplace that somebody witnesses and wants to report, but is fearful of being prosecuted and so doesn't report it. Right. Or food um, this safety. Is about Totally. Food safety violations. I mean, think about, you know, for instance, the riding Regency slaughterhouse in, in Toronto. I'm sure you know this story, but it actually got shut down by the CFIA last year. It had its license revoked right. because of E. coli concerns. Exactly. And about a year before that, activists released a video showing like botched slaughter practices and totally illegal actions. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this this comes out in so many ways. And it just it just reinforces, I think, in my mind, at least the value of whistleblowers. Yes. And why transparency in all these industries is so important. Yeah, because if it wasn't for whistleblowers or undercover investigations, nobody would know anything. <laughs> None of this is voluntarily coming out of these of these spaces of farms or slaughterhouses or any other of these kinds of, um, you know, shrouded in secrecy type places where workers are vulnerable. Um, no one's really just going to voluntarily put their hand up and declare something is wrong. We often need these protected whistleblowers or undercover investigators, or in the case of activists walking onto farms, very brave people, concerned citizens who are willing to do things outright illegal. Yeah. And, you know, to that point, I think what's interesting about this bill is that to listen to the farmers, they're like, oh, you know what? We care about trespass. We're so concerned about trespass. Our families are afraid of people coming onto our farms and into our houses and all this stuff. And it's 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 crocodile crocodile tears yes. i should say yes. in my eyes um you know we've got a situation where um, farmers are first of all no one's invading any farmers houses no. that's just not happening no. second of all it's already illegal to trespass on farms um and there's actually a variety of charges under the criminal code that could be laid if somebody commits an offense while inside a farm into which they've trespassed. Mm -hmm. um, you know, super interesting. I'm not sure if you caught this, but a woman who runs King Cole Duck Farms testified near the end of the day on Monday. Yeah. And she was like, so activists had entered King Cole Duck Farm mm -hmm. and found horrible stuff. Yeah. They found like ducks living on wire grates, um, ducks with serious injuries, ducks in very poor condition. And she was complaining about this whole situation and saying, this is why we need legislation. And one of the MPPs was like, okay. And so, you know, was anyone ever charged for, you know, coming onto your farm? And she's like, yes. And she's like, oh, what, char what charges? And she said they were charged under the criminal code, which I know to be true because I'm aware of the case. Mm -hmm. um, 
So they were charged with a criminal offense, multiple criminal offenses. They weren't even charged with trespass because criminal offenses are more serious. So it's like, on the one hand, she's she wants these new trespass laws, this egg egg bill to prevent people from coming onto her farm. Mm-hmm. But when people did go onto her farm, they were prosecuted. Oh, so isn't that interesting? What's going to change under this? Right. For her? Right. Nothing. No. And that's why this has always ever only been about the egg gag aspects of it, which shut off undercover exposés. Yes, and because what they found and what they were able to publicly distribute, those images and videos of those ducks was absolutely horrific. And the fact that we're talking more about the activists coming onto farms rather than the state of those animals is very telling to what's, um, to the situation at hand. Yeah, and you know, the, the images were so bad that Animal Justice filed a false advertising complaint with the Competition Bureau because their website tries to make it sound like it's a lovely place for animals when it's not. So right. we felt that was misleading to consumers, what's, but she didn't mention that during her testimony. What's the status of that right now? Uh, we haven't heard back from the regulator yet. Typically, they take a while to respond, mm-hmm. but we'll keep everyone posted. Yes, I'd be very interested to hear how that goes. Yes. And then the other thing I found so frustrating from farm industry people was how they tried to pretend constantly that they have standards and inspections. Mm-hmm. They always say the same thing. It's like, oh, we have the strictest standards of animal welfare, um, no, zero tolerance for animal cruelty and all this other flowery stuff. And it's yeah. like, no, you don't. There's no laws. <laughs> no, you don't. There's no inspections. No, it doesn't, it like, doesn't count when you're inspecting yourself. No, that's self-regulation. That's not public oversight. Right. So, well, and their, their version of, of the word cruelty or the word neglect or the word care or the word health, all of those definitions would be different for us than it would be for them. You know, to say that their animals are happy and healthy to the point of, yes, that you can profit off of them would not be my version or your version of happy and healthy. So these things are not even very clearly defined. And again, that's because it's not government regulated. And so they can make up their own definitions and then follow those in their own rules. <laughs> and the more people hear about this and learn the truth about how farming is, is not overseen by the government with respect to animal welfare, I think there's a direct link there between what we're seeing with these farm trespasses and those attitudes that people have because they're so concerned about the situation. And you've actually written about this. Yeah, yeah, for the Globe and Mail, it's one of the articles I I share the most in my uh, ongoing debates on Twitter with people about why animal activists are walking onto farms in this particular uh, column for the Globe and Mail. When was it from? Um... Oh, wow. April of last year. That's how long this has been going on for. Uh, it talks <laughs> It talks mostly, it zeroes in on um, the fact that the, the industry polices itself and that there's a lack of transparency and that the public deserves to know that there is no actual government oversight on, over the treatment of animals in their day-to-day life on farms. People would expect that. And in fact, that's not true. And people are shocked. The general public often are shocked to hear that. Yeah, people really don't appreciate the situation. We're, we're trusting Canadians, right? We just kind of assume that the government regulates in the public interest and cares about protecting animals. Yes. And when people learn the truth, they just, they don't accept it. They don't think that's good enough. And so, you know, one of the points I made at committee was this bill is not going to stop people from trespassing on farms. It's already an offense to trespass mm-hmm. and they already do it. Right. Uh, if you want to address the issue, regulate farming, oversee farming, release public inspection points, uh, reports, have some transparency. That's what's going to solve the problem. Yeah. Not yeah. trying to shut down debate. They're really missing the point <laughs> in this whole thing. And often 
when I have these debates on Twitter, I'll have farmers or, or industry people sending me, uh, you know, websites, say, you know, provincial animal care acts or um, different types of laws that they believe or are wanting or their audience to believe are there to protect farmed animals. And it takes me a matter of, you know, I'm sure you'd be even quicker at it, a matter of, you know, two minutes to, to go through those provincial animal care acts and find the exemptions for standard farming practices that suddenly, oh, yeah, it, this applies, you know, to cats and dogs, but people don't really realize that standard farming practices like piglet thumping, uh, for example, are exempt and that anything that happens on a farm really doesn't have uh, have anything to do with the law. No, authorities just prefer not to oversee it at all. I mean, there's legal arguments that you should be able to prosecute some of the most egregious stuff, but the authorities just aren't interested in going there. So in practice, this industry is completely insulated from any public scrutiny. And exactly why activists walk on farms. Yep, there we go. So... Yeah, so that was that was the hearings. Uh, we're <laughs> expecting a vote. Uh, probably by the time a lot of you listen to this podcast, we're going to be pretty close to having a vote on the egg egg bill, or maybe already there will have been one. But, um, you know, I guarantee this bill is going to be challenged in court. It's blatantly unconstitutional, and that's going to be, you know, the next step. So we'll see where it goes. I can't wait to take that on. <laughs> <laughs> All right, listeners, if you are uh, on the fence still and haven't left us a review on iTunes or Stitcher or any of other platforms, we would love if you went over there and did so and add to our 100 plus five star reviews. I'm going to read a new one from um, Kathy. Kathy ate zero rabbits for dinner is her full name. That's a cool name, Kathy. Mm -hmm. She says, plea to all Canadians to listen to this podcast. The brush, the brush. I love it. That's an inside joke where Peter always jokes about this brush that farmers say that cows really love, and oh, that's, that's like their welfare so provision. Oh, that's so true. I've heard it so many times. <laughs> They're like, oh, yeah, you know, we might steal their babies, but at least they have access to this brush. brush. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> she says, I'm so happy that you're back and doing well, Peter. I've missed listening to the banter between you and the always award-winning Gallivant and Camille Labchuk. Pawn Order is capital letters, the best podcast ever created. Wow. I've learned so much for it over the years and look forward to many, many more episodes, in particular to my favorite part, Heroes and Zeros. I believe Canada would be a much better place if everyone would just take a little time to listen to the podcast. And she recommends it to anyone, lawyer, non-lawyer, animal activist or not, vegan, vegetarian, meat eater, dairy, cattle, or vegetable farmer, as long as they're willing to keep an open mind. So thank you, Kathy. That's a lovely review. Why don't you go be like Kathy and leave us one of those reviews? We would really appreciate it. Mm -hmm. And also, I want to remind you folks that you can support us on Patreon to help keep this podcast on the air. And that's a platform for creators where you can sign up for a monthly donation to the podcast. Uh, it can be as little as a dollar a month or as much as you want. We offer regular prizes for our patrons. And of course, you get our undying love and gratitude. So check us out at patreon.com slash paw and order. Can I get your love for $1 a month, Camille? <laughs> <laughs> It's it's cheap. Maybe I should have set my prices a little higher. <laughs> but yeah, I, I still love anyone who donates, no matter the amount. So thank you guys for keeping this on the air. <laughs> All right, Jessica, we've got lots of news, as always. The animal news never stops. And I thought we'd start off by talking about um, a film that I know you and I have both watched, and hopefully a lot of listeners have too, which is The Walrus and the Whistleblower. Yeah, what a great documentary that came out uh, on CBC just this, uh, I think it was two weeks ago. Um, and it's since gone on to win a big award, right? 
Yeah, won the Audience Choice Award at the Hot Docs Online Film Festival. They they moved it all online this year, which was great, so people could still participate. Mm-hmm. It was But what a stunning sh- film! Yeah, it huh? was it was really well done. You know, I I heard people discussing it as it's going to be the you know sort of the black fish of Canada, uh, and I think it really turned out to be that way, focusing so much on Marine Land, our own uh, you know sort of Marine Park of Shame, and. The transition now, um, so I, I wrote a, a piece in the Toronto Star about it following, about how the, there's this concern that after um, the captivity of cetaceans has now been banned in Canada and the popularity of you know whales and dolphins across much of North America is sort of dwindling. Of course, it's growing in other parts of the world. But there's concern that here that uh, animals like walruses, which is the focus of, of course, uh, of this documentary, Uh, are going to be the next big ticket items at these shows. And it seems to be um, what may be happening. And to follow Phil and his efforts to free Smooshy, um, it was a really well done documentary. Yeah, so the film focuses on Phil Demers, who used to work at Marineland. He was he was there for over a decade. And he's an animal trainer, um, worked with all kinds of different cetaceans and, and other marine mammals. Phil developed a really special relationship with a walrus named Smooshie. She kind of imprinted on him. And it's been very painful for him to have left Marineland and no longer have the ability to, to see Smooshie or interact with her. Um, once he left, he became a whistleblower and exposed some pretty serious disturbing conditions at the, at the facility. Um, they've been suing him now for... Uh, going on seven years, um, over seven years, I guess, at this point, going on eight years for um, a million and a half dollars. And the legal battle has just been dragged out forever. Um, Phil is is not backing down. He's not someone who's easily intimidated by marine land litigation strategies. And that's been um, exciting to see uh, because they haven't managed to silence him. He uses his Twitter account. He uses his platform. He's been on the Joe Rogan podcast talking about these issues, biggest podcast in the world. So, you know, it's great to, I think, shine even more scrutiny on, on Marineland. But, um, yeah, so you wrote about the, the, the walrus situation in the Toronto Star. Yeah, so I spoke with um, Zuchek, and there was discussion about, like I mentioned, concern that um, these other animals, walruses and seals and sea lions, may become the next popular thing, uh, you know, entertainment at these places. And so, you know, it's time to turn some of the spotlight that we've, at least in Canada, successfully shone on on cetaceans. You guys, Animal Justice, have done such a great job um, with in helping passing the law to, to ban the captivity of whales and dolphins here. Uh, but now these, these other animals are becoming the next thing. And, you know, they deserve some of this um, welfare conversation and maybe some discussions about sanctuaries. We have sanctuaries for cetaceans being built um, off the coast of Canada, off the coast of Iceland. I think there's a dolphin one being proposed in the U.S. But now we have to start thinking about where these other marine animals are going to go. And that's something that I wish I could find out more from Phil, what his plan would be for Smooshie if he was able to actually rescue her. We never really hear that part. Do you know anything about that? Yeah, well, you know, I do know that um, there's been lots of discussion about, you know, where where Smooshie can go. Phil, Phil would, you know, happily um, do anything he can mm-hmm. to protect Smooshie. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a new wrinkle in this whole situation, mm-hmm. of course, is just this wild news that Smooshie actually gave birth just a few days after the film came out, yeah. which is wow. Um, there, 
this was totally unexpected to everyone, including Phil. Um, it's not clear if they bred Smooshy. Uh, Smooshy's the only living walrus left at Marineland. The other ones have all died off in the last few years. Apparently, the gestation period for walruses is 19 months. Wow. One of the, the walruses was still alive within that window, so it's possible. But there's concern that maybe they're trying to ship her to a German facility that breeds walruses. Mm-hmm. And maybe they were involved in this. It's, it's not really clear. Yeah. But yeah, so it's that, double double the trouble now. That lack of transparency is really kind of at the heart of of this issue. And it, isn't it true that to, to breed captive walruses is very difficult, that they don't often um, give birth in, cap- in captivity? So I'm assuming that this probably didn't just come about accidentally. Um, I think Phil's suspicions about, I think it's a, a zoo in Hamburg, um, probably have some merit. I've been trying to talk to some of my activist friends in Hamburg Um, Because, you know, I lived there for a time and some of them are on it. They're trying to find out what they can. But it definitely seems like a lot of this is shrouded in a lot of secrecy. Yeah. And without any transparency in the zoo industry or the aquarium industry, that's kind of the the situation we're in. People just have no way of getting information about these animals. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, we'll we'll, we're going to keep monitoring this mushy situation. I know Phil's doing everything he can to to protect her and her baby, and I'm very curious to see where it goes. Yes, me as well. And I I hope he was concerned about her age, right? That he thought that this was sort of a cruel thing to be doing to her at this age. So, you know, we have to keep their health in mind as well. Yeah, totally. And I don't know about the survival rates of of babies, baby walruses born in captivity. Mm. Um, I, I just I just don't know enough about walruses to really comment. But I do wonder, like, does she have parenting skills? Right. I know she was captured when she was pretty young. Right. Um, That's a good point. Is she going to be able to care for that baby? Did, was she deprived of those, you know, social learnings that marine mammals engage in? And, Who if knows? and if there's no other walruses there either right now, that's a very good point. I think we all need to learn a little bit more about walruses. And I think that's really what this uh, documentary and this situation with Smooshy is, is teaching us all that um, now it's time to, to really start giving walruses more attention. Yeah, we've we've banned whales and dolphins from captivity, but it's no time to rest on our laurels. Right. This is just the start. Yeah. More animals need to need to be banned too. That's right. All right. Well, another story I want to talk about. Um, this is just, I mean, so disturbing that I've had a hard time even like processing mm-hmm. it or thinking about it. But it's a direct action, invest, uh, direct action everywhere investigation in Iowa into um, a situation where a pig farm decided to, quote, depopulate its barns because of slaughterhouse shutdowns. And we talked about this on the podcast before, but supply chain disruptions. Mm-hmm. Um, they're leading a lot of farmers just to kill off animals that they can't slaughter for profit. Mm-hmm. So. It seems, Jessica, like DXC got a tip from a whistleblower, you know, again, the importance of whistleblower, that this pig farm was going to kill the pigs by shutting off the ventilation into the barn. And so that basically raises the temperature, raises the humidity level. They, you know, basically smother, boil alive, um, roast to death, however you want to call it. It, you know, I can't imagine a worse way to die. Yeah. And if you watch the video, I mean, the, the video itself doesn't show um, the most graphic parts, they do uh, provide some audio. Um, it's definitely one of the most disturbing things I've ever seen without having to see all of it. Um, and I had learned about it uh, a couple of weeks, a week or two before when I was writing a piece for Sentient Media, um, just seeing that this was a um, permitted um, 
method of mass euthanasia on farms euthanasia, we put in quotes. Um, I did some digging to find out they call this under, um, you know, certain circumstances. So more like emergency circumstances, which we would be in right now. Um, Constrained circumstances was the word they used. So um, I'll just read you a quick part from the sentient media piece. It says, according to the American Veterinary Association, ventilation shutdown. This is American Veterinary Medical Association that says this. It's crazy. Ventilation shutdown involves closing up the house, meaning barn or shed, shutting inlets and turning off the fans. Body heat from the herd raises the temperature in the house until animals die from hyperthermia. Numerous variables may may make the time of death 100% of animals in the barn subject to a range of times. So in this case, the... They call it ventilation shutdown plus. Uh, They say that the plus uh, included by the National uh, Pork Board means adding carbon dioxide or simply turning up the heat higher. And that's what we see in that video is they were actually adding steam to, to the barn. It is absolutely horrific that this is considered a permitted euthanasia method. By the American Veterinary Medical Association, nonetheless, yep. which should yep. be ashamed of itself. I agree. Um, so that's clearly an organization that doesn't have any concern about the suffering of these animals. Yeah. Um, no. Yeah. So, I mean, the deaths that the deaths took place over, I don't have the number in front of me, but like it took all night from what I recall from reading the article. Yes. These things don't, you know, and that, um, another article that I just wrote for Tenderly Magazine about the same thing happened uh, happening on chicken farms. Um, so there was one in Iowa that was killing, I think it was 140,000 chickens. And as the rescuers from Iowa Farm Rescue showed up, they were actively taking chickens out of the barns and putting them into these small gas chambers. So this was, this was uh, using CO2. Um, None of this happens quickly. And I remember the um, the owner of the sanctuary saying, people think that, you know, they just get put into this CO2 or that, you know, this the heat goes up and they just fall asleep. N- there's no falling asleep. They are fighting for their lives uh, over the course of minutes or perhaps hours for these things uh, to work. And that's why this term euthanasia really uh, is a misnomer, to say the it's least. It's a complete misnomer. Yeah. No, it, it, any media outlet that uses that to describe this process um, should immediately switch their policies yeah. because euthanasia is a kind way to put an animal down who needs to go for compassionate reasons. Like if your cat or dog is sick and old, um, it's certainly not a term to describe the mass killing of animals, basically just because they no longer have economic value, because that's what this is really all about. Right. Um, if the industry wanted to kill off these animals and wanted to do it in the least possible, um, in, the, in the way that causes the least possible suffering, they could do that. But they don't care enough to do that because that would cost more money and they want to make more money. Well, and there's just there's no contingency plans put in place, which I think, you know, if you're going to have a bit of a welfare argument about it, there should be a better plan in place where, where, you know, emergency situations like this happened or, as they say, constrained circumstances that this isn't the go to move. (laughs) You know, there should be better plans in place. Uh, And that's, again, really these conversations that are around how the system itself is flawed and so vulnerable that any hiccup um, leads to this amount of devastation. It, it, the, this whole system is flawed that way. It totally. And this is at least a conversation that people are now starting to have. Yes. yes. Um, there, there was an interesting poll done by uh, Professor Dalhousie about people's attitudes about on-farm killings mm-hmm. in these situations. And 54% of people said they believed it was wrong. Yep. So, you know, I think that's that's at least positive. I'm not sure about the other 46% and what they're thinking, but 
you know, what we saw in this video, the other the other thing I think is important to bring out is um, DXC has filed a cruelty complaint with authorities in Iowa. I'd be shocked if that went anywhere because yeah. Iowa is such a farming state. Um, in fact, Iowa has now passed three separate egg gate laws. The first one was struck down. The second one, there's an injunction against um, enforcing the egg gate law because it's probably unconstitutional. And apparently, I, I heard from a friend in the U.S. that just this week, they actually passed a third one or they were having debates on passing some kind of third one. Um, but interestingly, no charges yet for this method of killing pigs. Right. Um, but the investigator, a DXE representative yeah. who was involved in, in gathering this footage, has been charged, including with egg gig fences, yep. uh, egg gig offenses uh, that are not supposed to be enforced right now because of an injunction. So that's, you know, quite interesting in and of itself. Yeah. And just another example that whistleblowers are the ones they care about. They're not concerned about addressing cruelty. They're concerned about shutting off the source of the information. Yep, when they have a chance to look at something like this, and I'll, and their first move, the authorities' first move is to put Matt Johnson into into prison or into jail, uh, rather than doing anything with the animals. I mean, that's so telling. Yeah, so telling. Um, and you know, we just happen to know about this because apparently a whistleblower was working there. This isn't someone who got a job for the purpose of exposing cruelty. This was someone who worked at a farm and was concerned about these practices and let DXE know about it. Right. And they only knew about it because of this whistleblower. How many other farms across Canada, across the US, is this happening at that we just don't know about? Well, and now how deterred is anybody who's working at these places who might start to feel concerned about something going on? How deterred are they going to feel now knowing that these laws could be in place where they could be fined or even jailed? No. No doubt. I mean, would somebody in, in Ontario, after the egg gag statute passes here, would they be more likely to come forward or more or less likely? Right. Or, um, or in Alberta, Alberta right now. Yeah. Yeah. Alberta right now, where slaughterhouses are seeing some of the biggest COVID rates um, in the country. That's right. Yeah. No, it's disturbing stuff. And just a reminder of the power of this industry and um, the fact that the state will go to almost any length to protect its profits and will do pretty much nothing to protect the animals. There you so, have it. <laughs> You have it. Oh, sorry to be so doom and gloom, you guys, but sometimes you just have to you just have to vent. Tough times. All right. Well, there is a, you know, our last piece of news is a little bit more positive. It's a nice piece in the Globe and Mail by Jane Goodall, everybody's favorite conservationist. And she wrote this really uh, you know, nothing, nothing super novel, but the, the headline says to avoid another pandemic, we must have more respect for the natural world. And that, I think, is a point that a lot of people have been making right now. And she goes over the issues with wildlife markets, um, the fact that our treatment of wildlife is leading to these diseases and um, also touches on the trafficking of wild animals, which is something that gets, I think, a lot less attention than wildlife markets because it's not as visible, mm -hmm. but it's also a huge concern. Yeah, the transporting of, of animals from one place to another. I mean, we could say the same thing across North America, across Europe as well. Um, that is definitely something that probably needed more uh, space in these conversations, is that the transport of animals really, uh, really adds so much to that risk. Totally, totally. And Goodall argues that we need um, an international ban on training, eating and breeding wild animals that should be permanent and enforced for the sake of our health and the prevention of pandemics in the future, which I think... Um, increasingly people are agreeing with at this point. Yes, I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah, so thanks, Jane. Prawn and Organic is a Canadian company that makes vegan certified organic nutritional powders using only plant ingredients. 
Pranan's products provide high levels of natural vitamins and minerals and are free from synthetic ingredients, animal products, and all other mystery ingredients. The Pure Food product line includes iron, vitamin C, B vitamin complex, and A to Z multivitamins. They're designed to complement almost any diet and can be especially helpful for those who are vegan or vegetarian by targeting common deficiencies and boosting nutrient intake from real organic fruits and vegetables. I have some of their products and I put them in my smoothies in the morning and they are delicious powders. Uh, and it's even better knowing that they're good for me. Pranin's products are available online with international shipping, including free shipping for orders over $100 to Canada and the US. As listeners of Paw and Order, you can get 15% off your total order at pranin.com, P-R-A-N-I-N, using the code PAW15. If you're like us, you're a fan of coconut oil for cooking, baking, or maybe even a moisturizer. But we were surprised and disappointed to learn that coconut products are not always as cruelty-free as we thought. I did not know that it's common practice to have monkeys harvest up to 800 coconuts a day to make many of the products that we love. But before you start saying goodbye to coconut oil, we've found a company with all that coconut goodness without the animal labor. Naked Coconuts was born from the desire to help busy people leading busy lives access nutritious foods that taste good and are good for the body, mind, and planet. Sauces, oils, and protein bites that are all soy-free, gluten-free, and made from coconuts harvested by human hands who are paid a fair living wage. So stock up on your coconut oil or MCT oils, soy-free soy sauces, and more by heading over to NakedCoconuts.com or finding tons of cooking inspiration on Facebook or Instagram at, at NakedCoconuts. I particularly love some of their stir-fry sauces, so please check them out. Jessica, we're going to move into our main topic now, which is basically an interview with you. Oh, good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we thought it would be fun for our listeners to hear more about your work and, um, you know, not just about the work you do, but how the rest of us can get involved in helping raise the profile of animal issues in the media, because it's something that we can all play a role in. Um, there's actually some fairly easy, basic ways of doing that if you have a little bit of knowledge. So we're going to talk a little bit about Jessica's work first and then move into that topic. So, you know, I wanted to ask you first, um, how was it that you got into a journalism um, and be like caring and feeling compassion toward animals and then deciding to write about it? Yeah, none of this was really planned. I did do um, a communications degree for my for my undergrad, uh, but I was working more uh, in event planning and PR. Um, and then I moved overseas for a while and did a master's degree in cultural studies. Um, and while I was finishing that, just started doing some blogging about my life overseas. And that sort of evolved um, into when you're writing about culture, you inevitably write a lot about food. Um, and as I was writing about food while living in Switzerland and Germany, um, I started becoming much more interested in the ethics of food and food production, uh, about eating locally, about impacts on climate. Um and farming practices. And once you start sort of down that rabbit hole, um, I, I personally and professionally sort of evolved uh, from discussing things about, say, quote, humane slaughter and organic meat, uh, and as well as writing issues about uh, pets, cats and dogs, dog breeding, things like that. Uh, and eventually, you can't ignore the issues of animal agriculture, animals used in entertainment, animals used in fashion, animal testing. Um, and I personally became vegan over this time and then just continued to write more and more, I would say, down that rabbit hole. And I think during that time, 
the world was changing as well. I always say that my timing really worked, was really the best uh, factor in this, in that I was writing about things as they were at the exact same time emerging in the cultural consciousness um, about animals and um, our concerns about where our food come from for the most part. So um, I started writing op-eds for the Globe and Mail so grateful to um, my editor, Amberly, who gave me a shot, and it's evolved ever since. And thankfully, editors across Canada and, and the U.S. Um, seem to be increasingly concerned about the same issues that we are and um, are, are giving me the space to write about these issues more and more. Yeah, that's that's one of the most inspiring sort of bright points in the movement right now is just the, the profile that these issues are getting. And um and to your point about your your evolution, you know, thinking originally about whether there was a way to eat humane mm -hmm. meat and things like that, I sort of remember like watching you go through that. Yeah, it, you can <laughs> you can see it like the anthology of my work really shows the progress of my own thinking in that way. Totally, totally. I think we first connected on Twitter like quite a number of years ago now. Yeah, and my memory at the time was like. I knew you weren't vegan, but you were definitely into animal issues. Yes. And I think that you actually used to go to my brother's old restaurant when he was a chef, Pullman, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. That's I'm, that's hilarious. Oh, I love that I'm place. I'm pretty sure we had like interactions about this like eight years ago. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> anyway but, uh, but I was like, oh, who's this woman who seems like super smart and wants to write about animal issues? This is great. And then you sort of like got more and more into it and became vegan. And, and now you're, you know, writing some of the, the, the most important animal journalism in the country. So oh, it's, gosh, it's been awesome. Oh, gosh, thanks. It's awesome. <laughs> well, I have, I have to give a shout out to Anna Pippis because she was one of the ones who was instrumental in, uh, in gently guiding me towards veganism, gently asking the <laughs> questions um, that I, you know, already had in the back of my head that somebody else had to had to bring to the forefront. So thanks to her. Yay, Anna. <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, I want to I want to get your thoughts on. Um, we talked a little bit about the fact that these issues are getting more coverage. Um, why do you think they are, and why do you think it's important that they do? Why, why is it, you know, part of this struggle for animal rights, this social justice movement that we're working on, why is media exposure important to that? Well, there's a lot of validation that comes um, with these discussions being put in headlines across Canada in, in national media. You know, if I can write for animal advocacy publications till I'm blue in the face, and, and, I, and I do, um, but I think having um, these headlines in publications like McLean's, for example, CBC, Global Mail, Toronto Star, it really brings um, some credibility and, and validation to issues that, say, 10 years ago would have been considered perhaps more fringe. Um, and it also allows people to discuss things more openly. I, I really love the Toronto Star's, um, what's it called, the, the debate page that they have on Tuesdays. Um, oh, the, the big debate, I the think. The big debate, that's what it's called. Yeah, I really love doing that opportunity because it really, I think I've done uh, about four or five of them where they pit me against uh, oftentimes somebody from the industry, a farmer sometimes, uh, and it really, really gets people talking about these things and allows these sort of balanced perspectives um, in ways that we've never seen before. And the animals need it, obviously. Animals need representation, just like they need representation uh, in the courtroom and in government. They need representation in the media, too. They can't write these articles, so we need as many people uh, writing on their behalf as as we as we can get, and I'm hoping more and more people will start doing the work that I do. Yeah, I hope so too. And and you know, there there's a few good columnists, um, like 
Toronto stars Thomas Walken yeah. is often good on this. Um, Liz Renzetti at the Globe and Mail is amazing. Yes. She's, you know, she's not vegetarian or vegan, but she understands the issues. And she wrote a stunning piece last summer about just why animal rights is like an important social struggle. Um, even Margaret Wente has said that we're going to look back um, in future gener generations and the thing that we're going to be most ashamed of is our treatment of animals. Mm -hmm. So I feel like it's starting to creep in there with columnists and commentators too. Yeah. And I think having, you know, sometimes having the non-vegans or the non-activists saying these things um, adds another layer uh, to the discussion too, because I think sometimes it gets to a point where people expect me to say certain things. Um, I do like to add as much nuance as I can, but the baseline, you know, argument is always there. And so we can have these discussions with non-vegan people who are seeing, seeing these things um, and speaking out in the media this way. That's, that's also a great addition to these conversations. Yeah, and it's been cool to watch the evolution um, among some journalists and commentators who, you know, I think at one point never really would have given animal issues a second thought or perceived it as a legitimate question. Um, but now I see them liking, you know, tweets from me or yeah. tweets from you. They're, they're starting to interview us on their shows. And, you know, it's been cool that uh, we're actually witnessing this shift. Like, I do really believe that something meaningful is happening and that the shift is underway as we speak. Yeah, and I think it's because it's so multifaceted now and it's so intertwined with other issues. Um, I think the climate crisis coming to such a fore and um, other social justice issues, workers' rights issues, pandemic issues, um, animals, animal agriculture, our treatment of animals, of wildlife are so intertwined um, with so many other hot topics and concerning issues right now that it, you can't ignore it. You can't ignore animal agriculture and other animal issues uh, this day and age, because then you'd be ignoring so many other important things. Yeah, no, it's true. Like you really just can't do justice to coverage of say like infections and slaughterhouses without talking about the animals in some capacity. Yep. Now I say that, although I also recognize that most of the media stories on this stuff really didn't consider the animals interest. There's a couple where, you know, there might be quotes from workers about how the animals really suffer, but like usually that's not really the focus. So do you think there's, do you think there is still like a pretty substantial blind spot that we have to get past? Oh, of course. Yeah. I mean, you're, and it's going to differ by reporter, by editor, by publication, um, how much attention they pay to the animal at all. Um, I know, I think there was some coverage in the Toronto Star um, about um, meat shortages and they discussed nothing about the culling of animals on farms. And I asked the reporter why that was, and they just said, oh, that they thought that that was a separate issue. And I was like, that is not a separate issue at all. Uh, there's definitely blind spots. And I think the way that we can see progression or see which editors or which publications, which reporters are, are making that progress is in their use of language, um, you know, referring to animals as they rather than it. Um, and this, and actually just discussing them at all, <laughs> you know, um, yeah. the, we're, we are seeing that progress, but it definitely, um, there definitely are, are blind spots for sure. That's always been one of my pet peeves, the, the whole it of yes, animals, exactly. um, especially like even sometimes you see it, they'll be talking about an animal who's obviously male or female, and that's relevant to the story in some way. Like maybe the animal gave birth. Yep. And so we know she's a, she's a mother still an it. and then later on still an it, it's like, how can you like how can you write a story that way it's just like a inaccurate and be so disrespectful it's grammatically inaccurate but you know i remember when i first started doing this you know six years ago or so i remember instances of having to fight for those um language choices because in style books 
uh, journalistic style books, they style guides, they don't allow for these um, new uses of, of pronouns for animals. And I had to fight for it. And now whenever I use it, they're not changed anymore. Uh, I just wish that others would um, also change them so that it could become more the norm. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. And, you know, on that point, what advice would you have for citizens who read these stories and they're frustrated? I know, you know, sometimes people get mad and they tweet at journalists and, you know, there's degrees of accusatoriness. Sometimes it's a nice conversation. Sometimes it's not so nice. Do you think there's an effective way to try to educate media who just haven't thought about these issues yet? I definitely think social media is a powerful tool. Uh, but as I've I've told a lot of people and in workshops and such, if you can, you know, write a 50 word complaint or thought or insight on Facebook, take that 50 word paragraph and send it to the editor. Use it as a letter to the editor. Everybody has um, the opportunity to do this. Even if they don't get published, the fact that editors are seeing this commentary, whether it's about the, the way that the reporter um, reported on an animal issue or omitted an animal within an issue or something that you thought was very important, you know, that you, you were glad to see it discussed in the media. Writing letters to editors is something that everybody can do. Um, so take it off social media all the time and put some of it, uh, it's just send an email to the editor so that they can see how important these issues are. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a really good point because, you know, the media, just, just like other institutions, like politicians, for instance, um, and even the courts, it's a dialogue. There's, um, you know, a responsibility that they have to be responsive to the public mm -hmm. and to people's attitudes. And they fear losing uh, listeners or losing readers as well if they're not responsive to what people are asking for and what modern values reflect. So I think that's a really good point. And it keeps, and it keeps issues in the news, too. Um, I've seen conversations because, you know, animal issues are hot topics. I've seen conversations um, go back and forth in the letters to the editor section into a week past the original article being published. Uh, and I think that that's just great that you can have these very public conversations about animal issues that continue right in the newspaper that everybody can read. That is that is very important. And, um, you know, letters to the editor, I'm glad you brought them up because I wanted to ask you about them. Um, they're an excellent tool, mm -hmm. right, for the, for the public to get involved in raising the profile of these issues. Can you describe how one goes about writing a letter to the editor? So a lot of our listeners probably never have done so or haven't really thought much about it, but how would you um, decide what to write, who to send it to, how to craft it? Yeah, so I actually have asked some of my editors um, from the Global Mail and other publications what they look for, and timing is really the most important thing. Uh, things are so quick now. Um, you don't actually have to put your letter in the mail. Things are happening by email. So as quickly as you can following the publication date, the better. Keeping things short, I think 200 words was the max, and, and keeping it punchy, right? Making sure that you're, you're very convincing, uh, you're very strong in your opinion, uh, not necessarily, you know, exaggerating, uh, but but be punchy and and make a very clear point, uh, and get it in there as quickly as you can. Well, those are those are some good tips. And usually, you guys, if you if you're interested in responding to something, you can find um, on the contact page of media websites. You can find um, a letter to the editor email address that you can send it to. Yeah, very public, easy to find. Yeah, cool. 
Well, that was illuminating. Um, thank you for that and the work that you're doing. Uh, you know, the, it really is uh, the process of making social change depends on so many different institutions and groups of people doing their part. Um, we do a little bit of that in the courts and the legislature. But honestly, it's impossible to make any progress if there is no media coverage of an issue. So, you know, on the egg gag bill, it, it's been it's been a little challenging. Um, I know the PCs have a majority and, and they're going to pass it probably no matter what. But uh, the fact that it has not received a ton of coverage until recently, there have been a few good outlets who've, who've, who've like consistently been there. But, um, you know, it's it's been a real issue. Uh, when we were working on the whale and dolphin bill, there was one journalist in Ottawa, Holly Lake, who kept covering this issue no matter what. And she covered it in great detail. She's great. And I feel like, yeah, Holly's amazing. But yeah. I feel like the bill never would have passed without her, you know, shining a spotlight on it. So thank you for what you do, because it matters to all the rest of our work. Well, and I would just encourage anybody who's in journalism school right now, consider making this your beat. Even if they tell you that this isn't an actual beat, take my word for it, it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's that's hopeful too. More young journalists coming up who might be vegan or aware of the issues and keen to cover them as legitimate topics. Heroes and Zeros. All right, everyone, it's time for our final but favorite segment, Heroes and Zeros. <laughs> All right. So our hero this episode, we wanted to, it's sort of a large group of people, but um, generally this relates to the Black Lives Matter protests that are happening across the U.S., across Canada, um, other countries as well. And so it's not an award for anyone in particular, but, you know, to everyone who's out protesting and especially the black people who've led the way in raising the profile of this issue and making sure that the rest of us are paying attention and um, that policy changes are on the way. Yeah, absolutely. I think we need to pay very close attention, especially as vegans, as animal rights activists, to um, give this this moment in time our attention if we want to be um, fully anti-oppression uh, this is definitely a huge part of that I know I learned a lot I attended the rally here in Winnipeg um, and I, I learned a heck of a lot and I definitely plan on imparting a lot of that wisdom onto my child and, and doing things different in my own life and I'm very grateful to those protesters they are definitely heroes yeah, totally. And, you know, I think this is a good time to remind vegans and animal rights activists that we need to be actively anti-racist in addition to advocating for animals, because veganism, to me, and, and I think to, uh, you know, most people I know, it's part of a social justice movement. Um, we're not just concerned about animals, we're concerned about oppression for all beings, all living beings, and fairness and justice for everyone. So it's an important time. Um, I, you know, recently just to recommend a book that I've been reading recently. Um, I happened to start this before the protests broke out and coincidentally just was, you know, finishing it as they started. Um, but I read the book, uh, White Privilege, Why It's So, sorry, White Fragility, Why It's So Hard to Talk to mm. White People About Privilege. And it was really eye-opening for me and in a way that was at times uncomfortable, but I think that's important. It's important to be uncomfortable at times because this isn't about comfort for people who are privileged. It's about being a better ally and being actively anti-racist. So um, I really recommend that. I know lots of people have been sharing really great reading lists. I've got, um, I'm lined up at the library on the wait list for a bunch of those books right now, and I'm looking forward to keeping um, the learning going. But. Um, you know, it's just been really inspiring to see what happens when people have had enough and rise up and demand social change. And we're seeing like, you know, major policy stuff coming out of this, like moves to defund the police, which 
um, I know I think that conversation is long overdue. Yeah, it really shows um, the power of, of people gathering and and the power of, of anger and that these things work, that when the people come together, um, changes can be made, huge systematic changes, like the defunding of police. What a huge monumental thing um, to be even discussed and probably going to happen. And it's, it's so inspiring. And anybody who's involved in social justice movements should be absolutely motivated and inspired by this. Yeah. And, you know, amazingly, up until a couple of weeks ago, I don't think most people had heard of movements to defund the police. I, I know I used to be a criminal defense lawyer, so I've kind of thought about this for a while and it wasn't super novel, but uh, it went from like a fringe issue, yeah. a fringe perspective to something that everyone now knows about and a lot of people are supporting. So it just goes to show that sometimes the social conditions are, are right for making serious change. And, and you know, I, I don't want to take away from what's happening and, and, you know, make this about the animals, but I do want to say it gives me hope for what we might one day accomplish for animals when enough people are mo- motivated and yeah. mobilized and, and see the problem for what it is and demand better. Yeah, you can't help but be inspired in that way, for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, for every hero, there's a zero. And for the zero, we wanted to uh, give an award to, I guess, the federal and provincial governments for this one, which I'm not sure that we've ever given them um, an award at the same time, although they've probably every province has received the zero award at some point, and definitely the feds have too. (laughs) But this is in relation to a pretty solid piece of investigative reporting by the CBC about the fur industry in Nova Scotia and PEI, specifically the mink firm industry. And uh, the fact that so many farms are going bust and governments have apparently subsidized them to the tune of $100 million. But because fur prices, oh, it's madness. But, you know, fur pelt prices, mink pelt prices have have really plummeted in recent years. And this is an industry that is not profitable anymore. Um, So the CBC story really laid bare uh, how much taxpayer dollars are wasting on this industry that's horrible for animals and, um, you know, not good for the economy either yeah and i think if we can sort of you know use this as a as again as motivation to see um a failing industry exploiting animals that's falling out of public favor that's taken so much bailout money from the government and yet still continues to fail i think uh wouldn't we love to see animal egg follow the same path (laughs) There's a lot of parallels there. I mean, it's agri-stability, this fund that all farmers seem to be able to tap into, which is basically like, oh, you're not making enough money here. Here, we'll give you some. Um, And obviously, as you and I both know, there's so many subsidies built in for farmed animal producers at the federal level, provincial level, just so many different funds they have access to. There's supply management, which is one giant subsidy for producers. So, you know, I... I think people are starting to question the funding being given to farmers and whether we're getting value for that. And especially in the context of the pandemic and food supply disruptions, people are wondering, like, is this the best way to keep our food security right. in a good position? Yeah, exactly. All this this milk being dumped and animals being culled, uh, there's so much waste involved. And to know that I hate to know that my tax dollars are going to bail out these industries that are not just harming animals, but wasting so much money. So much money, so much money that could be far better spent on, you know, any number of things, Um, especially at a time when we're going into unprecedented levels of debt to respond to this health crisis that we're in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well said. 
All right. Well, on that note, Jessica, it's been fun. I hope you're going to come back and join us again soon. Oh, I'd love to. What an honor to, ha- to be here. Thank you so much for, uh, for allowing me to take this on. <sighs> Anytime. All right, everybody. We'll be back in a few weeks. Talk to you then. Ciao. We'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in today. We'd love to ask you to subscribe to the Pod & Order podcast using Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or your other favorite podcatcher. Also, please leave a rating because it helps more people find the show. And if you can, please tell other listeners to share the podcast so more people can hear us. You can also consider supporting us on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash order if you like what you hear. You can find me on Twitter at, at Peter Sankoff or at my website, petersankoff.com. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Camille Labchuk, that's L-A-B-C-H-U-K. And we always enjoy Twitter conversations about the show or any other animal law or political topics. And finally, we'd like to thank our producer, Shannon Milling. See you next time on Paw and Order. For more great iRaw podcasts, visit iRawPod.com. That's I-R-O-A-R-P-O-D dot com. Ah!